Well, for weeks now, we've been watching that sermon bumper video and the bombs explode. And today, it's the sermon about the bombs exploding. It's the soul and the war that wages on. I want to begin with uh, something that's true. I think it deserves uh, acceptance, widespread acceptance. Uh, It's this. It's difficult to solve a problem when you can't identify the problem. You agree with that? Difficult to solve a problem when you can't identify what the problem is. When I was in college, my freshman year, I was young. I was 17, about to turn 18. And I'd saved up money. I'd cut grass and done things and saved up money to buy my first ride. And it was a car, not just a car. It was a Jeep. And it wasn't just a Jeep. It was a Jeep Wrangler, a Jeep CJ7 with a three-speed on the floor and a soft top and dual headers on the exhaust. You could hear me coming. It was awesome. I bought this Jeep and I was so proud. And when I got it, now listen, I don't, I, I, embarrassing to admit, I didn't know how to drive a three-speed on the floor. You guys ever, some of you don't even know what I'm talking about. And I'm one of those guys where I write left-handed, but I do everything else right-handed. And there's a name for that. What is that called? Brilliant. Yeah, brilliant. But anyway, I couldn't, I was like, man, do I, gotta, do I have to shift down with the, with the left hand? I couldn't do it with the right. I was struggling. So I practiced a little bit, but my best friend, David Dodd, uh, he had a girlfriend. I had a girlfriend at that time. And he goes, man, let's take the girls out tonight in the new Jeep. And I thought, I couldn't say it. No, one man can't look to another man and say this. But I, in my mind, the voice was saying, uh, I need to practice. And, but I couldn't say that to David, right? I'd lose major cool points. I'm like, yeah, let's take the girls out. And so we went out, a couple of other friends jumped in with us and we rode around, we were getting whiplash as we were driving around, went out on hills and country roads and y'all, the first night out on the town, the Jeep breaks down. And I get out, you're going to laugh if you know me, and I get out and walk and look under the hood. That's people that know me. And I had no idea what I was looking for. Anybody feel that pain? And I thought, how's this going to end? Because I'm faking it. I have no idea. I might as well have been looking in the glove compartment to figure out what was wrong. I mean, I'm talking no clue. And a big part of solving the problem is knowing where to look. It's hard to solve a problem if you cannot identify the problem. And some of us have been trying to solve us for a long time. Some of you have lost family and friends and jobs trying to solve you. Some of you have lost money trying to solve you. And this morning we begin with this um, introductory word. It's from 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 11. And it gives us this imperative, this command, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners, some translations say as foreigners, as sojourners or foreigners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. This morning we're going to look at the soul at war. You see, for us to talk deeply, to delve deeply into soul language is to consider sin language. Here's what I want to share with you that's really true. A singular A singular deceit can equal, oftentimes equals, deeper deceit. There really are no small sins. And it's easy for us, in fact it's bound up, I believe, in all of us. When we get away with a little something, we go on to more somethings. Oh, I I couldn't make it on time, It it was the traffic, when it really wasn't the traffic at all. I sent that, I put that in the email. I am responsible because I sent you that email. You didn't, you didn't get the email when we didn't really send the email. 
Before you know it, we're fudging the numbers and cooking the books and we're sweeping things under the rug. And it's true that a singular deceit, singular deceit can lead to deeper deceit. And that is the nature of this reality called sin. Paul would say in Romans 7, he would say, I, I bet some of you can relate to this, the things that I want to do, I don't do. And the things that I don't want to do, I do those things. How, how embattled is that life? How frustrating is that life? How futile is that life? The things that you want to do, you're not doing them. The things that you don't want to do, you're doing those things. And Paul would say, what a wretched man am I? Because that's how we feel when our life isn't growing, when we're, when we're not maturing, when we're being held back by things. And we get deeper and deeper into it. And thank God that Romans 7 yields to Romans 8 where he says there's therefore no more condemnation. There's a new way. There's a better way. There's a way where we can grow and yield fruit and flourish. It's the way of the gospel. It's the way of freedom. But here we are in this reality. This reality known as sin. And everybody knows it. Everybody knows the reality of sin. Susan and I, a long time ago out west, only one time, this will never happen again, but we attempted to fly fish. And neither one of us, including me, knew what we were doing, but we got the license, paid the money, and just entered into this uh, thing, that, this endeavor that was really bad at that moment for our marriage. And we just, you know, we just, we weren't good at it. And the first advice that they give you when you're learning to fish is, to catch fish, you need to think like fish. So how does a fish think? Think about it. A fish is looking for the maximum amount of gratification at the minimal energy expenditure. A fish is eyes with a stomach and a body and an appetite. And why no fish swim in schools, but they're dumb. And here's the thing, a fish just goes after it. See, see a fly with a rainbow trout, it's see a fly, want a fly, eat a fly. And if we're not careful, that sin instinct in us can live that way where we can just be people of instinct. See something, want it, go for it. Maximum amount of gratification with minimal energy expenditure. And that can be us. James, the half-brother of Jesus, put it this way in James 1, 14-15. He said that each person is tempted when he's dragged away and enticed by his own desire. And desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it yields itself to death. Are we smarter than fish? Think about it. Because you look at our world today, and not a, not a week goes by where a headline doesn't show a CEO, a powerful leader of a company, a very visible politician, a Hollywood celebrity, a church leader, someone that speaks in front of crowds and motivates people. People with brains and charm and charisma, talent, power, and unlimited potential, but don't know how to deal with the emptiness inside. And so that emptiness inside draws us. See, see the fish, see the fly, want the fly, eat the fly. And it draws us and it allures us to take a bite of things. And that emptiness inside is not dealt with. That soul that's waging war exposes us. And it's cost countless people. 
Countless people we would look at and say, oh, they've got the life I want. I didn't know. I didn't know this emptiness inside. I didn't know the way they were living and some of the choices that they were making. And that's the power of sin. How do you fight? How do you fight? Some of you are like, well, with a broken beer bottle out in the parking lot. and No, no. No, how do you fight? When you're confronted with a difficulty, when there's a challenge in front of you, how do you fight? We fight differently, don't we? If you're sitting next to someone that you're in a relationship with, maybe someone you're married to, you know how they fight, don't you? They know how you fight. How do you fight? Psychologists have told us, uh, this. you've learned this probably in school growing up, there's three options when you're confronted with a difficulty. You can fight, and then there's flight, and there's freeze. Fight is when you strike back. Flight is when you take off. Freeze is when you, you get bogged down. So how do we, how do you fight? It's really easy for us to want to get away. It's easy for us to want to bog down. Instead of accepting responsibility and standing courageously, we sit passively. And here's what's true of us. Not, not winning points with you today. This isn't complimenting the congregation. This is just preaching the truth. But preaching the truth today, I will tell you, that it's so easy for us to want to hide. It's easy for us to want to hide. One of the first games that a child plays is universal. It's hide and seek. You've all played hide and seek, haven't you? It's a fun game when you're a little kid. It can be fun as you get older, I guess. But hide and seek is fun. In fact, the first form of hide and seek is a game that babies play called peekaboo. It's not really advanced hide and seek. They just sit there in their chair, right? You've, you've seen this, done this, and that's... That's sort of their version. Peekaboo is hide and seek. But when those little human creatures develop legs and a volitional will and a mind of their own, they began, right, in language, they began to what? To run. And they, they count to 10 or 50 or 100, right? Someone is it. There's got to be a person who's it. And that it has to count. And the rest of the folks, they run and they hide. And it's a game that's often a joyful game of hiding and discovery. And as kids get bigger... They get smarter and wiser and learn more advanced, difficult places to hide. And when we get into our adulthood, we stop hiding, we stop playing hide and seek, and we just hide. Think about a first date scenario. Uh, for some of you, you gotta go, like me, you gotta go way back in time, but you think of that first date. For some of you, we're praying that you'll get that first date soon. But here, listen, when you, when you think of a first date, what, what's happening there? Uh, pretend it's like this in your imagination. Someone is coming over, they're going to pick you up and you're going out. And what do you do if they're coming to your house to pick you up? You're going to invite them in for a quick moment, but what do you do before they get there? You're going you're gonna to clean up. You guys follow me? 9.30 was good. 11 o'clock, a little slow. Yeah. You're going to do what? You're going to clean up. You're going to clean up. And if you're a bachelor, you may go out and buy a scented candle. Now, you had not cleaned up in years. You've never bought a scented candle, right? You're going to... before. Before she comes up, you're, like, you're going to put stuff in closets and drawers, that mess, all that junk. You're going to scramble and scurry to get it put away. Why? Because you want the place to smell good. It never has before. You want it to look good. You want to come across as disciplined and organized and neat and tidy. Why? Because it's a first date. And you want to make this really good impression, which is a very false impression. But that's the way... We start relationships off, isn't it? And if we're not careful, we never get out of that. 
move from a first date scenario in your imagination to in your mind the first story, the creation story of God being a creator, creating this beautiful world. And Scripture tells us, you'll appreciate this language in August in Mississippi, but it says that God, that they walked in the coolness of the garden. And God created this, this paradise with no humidity or mosquitoes. That came as a result of sin and the fall. And God created, and He created man and woman, and everything was good except the compliment. Except male and female. And he said, here it is yours. And they made a choice of rebellion. A choice that's in every heart. You see, sin is not just a verb, something that you do. Sin at a deeper level is a noun. It's something you're born into. And they make this choice. A choice that they thought was a free choice. And what happens? After they make the choice, God comes looking for them. He's looking for someone to accept responsibility. And they do the opposite. They do the very first thing was a very human thing, and it's a thing that affects all of us. And I believe every home and every workplace, it's no wonder we gossip and backstab. It's no wonder we have jealousy and rage and anger and malice and turn against each other in our homes, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods. Because the first humans... They hid. They, they didn't accept responsibility. In fact, just the opposite. They avoided taking responsibility and they pointed the finger and they shifted the blame. And that's in us. And I ask you today, is that how we want to fight? Where does the hiding get you? You see, the gospel story is the best story ever because the good news is that the joy is in the discovery. When you hide, there's joy in the discovery. But for you and I, we have to accept that responsibility to fight the good fight of faith, to wage a war against sin that wages a war against our souls. We need to learn to fight the right way. And so this morning, I want to give you two key words from the Gospel to help you fight. The first word is joy. C.S. Lewis called that word the serious business of heaven. The second word is identity. Back up for a moment and look at this reality about dissatisfaction. When your soul is dissatisfied, sin begins to look very tempting. Do you believe that? Do you know that that's true? Do you know that that's you at your worst? To say that I'm at a place of discontentment, to say that I'm not satisfied is, 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 a, is a big thing. In fact, it's a, it's a thing of sin. It's a thing that's outside of God's design and plan for your life. He created you with a soul. We've been saying that the soul is the deepest part of you. It's the integrated you. It's the real you. It's the eternal you. And that in you, the real you, the integrated you, the eternal you was designed by a designer, built, created by a creator to be satisfied. And when you and I are dissatisfied, that's not a small thing. Joy is the gift. Joy is the gift that we fight with. Peter would say it to these early followers of Jesus. First Peter was written to Jesus' followers in the first century who were up against tough times, specifically persecution. In First Peter 1.8, 
it says this, Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is an inexpressible joy. It's inexpressible and filled with glory. The version of that, the English version I memorized when I was a teenager, is joy unspeakable and full of glory. And here it is, Peter is saying, you see, joy is not, by the way, it's not a circumstance word, it's a soul word. Some of you have pushed the pause button of your life because you're in a difficult circumstance. And you're waiting for the favorable circumstance to override the painful circumstance. And so you've paused joy. Little laughter, lightness, and levity in your life because you're going through something difficult. And joy, real joy, is just the opposite of that. Look how the psalmist put it in Psalm 28 and verse 7. The Lord is my strength. This is such a great thing about joy. And my shield and my heart trust in Him and He helps me. My heart, listen, leaps for joy. And with my song, I praise Him. He had run out of adjectives and superlatives to describe His joy. And I believe it's true. When you see the Lord being your shield and your help, when He's helped you in the midst of a difficulty, it's hard not to leap. In fact, that's what joy does. Joy leaps. Now there's this poetry and imagery and metaphor. But He has run out of adjectives to describe it. So He says, it leaps. My heart, it leaps with joy. He would go on to say in Psalm 30 and verse 11, You turn my wailing into dancing. You remove my sackcloth and clothe me with joy. It's something that leaps within me and it's something that hangs heavy on me. In a good way, this joy covers me. 1 Thessalonians 1 and verse 6, You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. I spoke this week to a group of students, teachers, educators, administrators at a graduation ceremony. And before I was coming up to speak, they were singing some worship songs. And during the worship song, there was a woman that I, I know her and know of her, and she was in a wheelchair. And she's going through some tremendous pain and paralysis. And I know that she has a grandson that's in the hospital right now. One of our folks visited him this week and he's in a tough spot. And joy was resplendent on her face. And during this worship, her hands were in the air and tears were in her eyes. And you know, you know when you see joy sometimes? And I was seeing joy and I was thinking, wow, it's the woman in the wheelchair. It's the woman I know who has a grandson in dire straits. And she has this joy. And she's singing. And she's letting it out. And that's the reality of this joy. Let me read from a writer named Brian Loritz. He talks about this, um, the joy that comes out where it comes from. He says the following in this chapter called Soul Songs. The slaves, this is an African-American pastor, probably important to note as I read this. The slaves of the Annabellum South ached for something more. In a world where they were treated as less than human, they knew what others said about them, and the way they were treated was at odds with who they were created to be. Listen to the songs they sang in the sweltering heat of southern plantation cotton fields, and you will get a peek at their unsettledness. Sure, some of their songs were encrypted messages of escape passed through the vocal highway of melody, but their songs carried a richer meaning. Frederick Douglass, the great 19th century abolitionist orator, reveals why the slaves sang. 
I have often been utterly astonished since I came to, to the north to find persons who could speak of the singing among slaves as evidence of their contentment and happiness. It is impossible to conceive of a greater mistake. Slaves sing most when they are not, when I'm sorry, slaves sing most when they are most unhappy. The songs of the slave represent the sorrow of his heart and he's relieved by them only as an aching heart is relieved by his tears. Now back to Brian, a pastor friend of mine. The slave sang because something was wrong. Life as they knew it was amiss. Like a CT scan, the songs of the slaves revealed the most intimate sections of their hearts. At the core, the slaves sang because they longed for more. Their songs articulated the deepest aches of their souls. The biblical equivalent of the old Negro spirituals is a collection of songs called laments. Journeys through these lament songs or journey through them, and you hear the aches of the Jewish people who put to pen the disequilibrium in their souls. These laments could be easily mistaken for Negro spirituals, as the Jews wondered if they were loved, if God really cared about them, and if He did, would He protect them from their enemies? Embedded in these Jewish laments and Negro spirituals are universal questions that continue to play on the iTunes playlist of our very own hearts. Like the oppressed Jews and African slaves, we all want to know we're valued and we're esteemed for who we are and not for what we do. We want a performance-free love infusing us with inherent worth and dignity. We need to know we're valued and accepted even when our performance fails. Does such a thing even exist? And if it does, what does it look like? Peter would say before he tells us to wage this war against our souls, he tells us who we are in Jesus. We're a chosen race. This is 1 Peter 2.9. If your Bibles are open, you can look and trust me on this. He says you're a chosen race. You're a royal priesthood. And you're a holy nation. And we misunderstand a little bit of this, or we need to gain some understanding, but a chosen race for us is more divisive than it is united. It just sounds exclusionary, doesn't it? In fact, in our the current level of political debate and dialogue, we live in a world where politicians, either accused of this or they do this, they'll say certain words to race bait. And what it does is it divides people and then it unites people to vote for them. It stirs up fear. You guys follow this? Anybody tracking with me? But this is so different than that. In fact, saying that we're a chosen race is not oh, how we're different, but it's talking about what brings us together. Now, we live even in our country. We have lots of differences. I was talking to the 930 service about some of these. Just think about the parts of our country. Uh, think about, uh, I'm, I'm going to speak with some exaggeration and generalities, but northern folks, uh, they think of themselves as smart and efficient, and they tend to think of other people as slow and dumb. Southerners tend to think of people, uh, they think, tend to think of themselves as more moral and more hospitable. And so they can think of other, I should say we, can think of other people, right, as um, loose and rude. People out west think of themselves often as progressive cultural elites and can see other people as backwoods and bucktooth. Texas people, I'm not even going to go to Texas. But anyway... It's easy for us, even in our own country, to, to stereotype and to divide and to highlight distinctives and to exaggerate them. And, and we do that. And Peter is saying, and by the way, Peter had one vision of what the gospel was about and then he went up on a roof. I got to visit uh, there last year when we were in Israel. He got to go up at a roof in, uh, in Acts chapter 10 and God uh, gave him a vision and told him that this gospel is for everybody. And so this chosen race meant Jews 
and Gentiles and slaves and free and rich and poor and men and women were all coming together in one race that really matters. And Peter is saying to us, that's who we are. You're a chosen race. You're a part of this. And you're a royal priesthood. What a wonderful expression from 1 Peter 9. Royal means the idea there is majestic and priesthood, the idea there is acceptable. If you feel like you're small and insignificant, if you feel like the important or the decisions you're making aren't important, if you feel like there's not a purpose and meaning for your life, you're a king, you're a queen. That's what the gospel speaks into you. And then there's the priesthood, a word very misunderstood in our day. Being a non-denominational church, I've had people ask me, do you have priests? I, I, say, I say no, and I say yes. I say we don't have priests like you think we have priests. But the funny thing is, everybody's a priest. We believe what the New Testament teaches, the priesthood of all believers. Now, in the Old Testament, a priest did three things. A priest offered sacrifices to God. A priest represented God to the people. And a priest represented the people to God. Jesus comes. And oh, let me say this incidentally. There, uh, in the Old Testament, a king was not allowed to be a priest. It had never happened. Jesus was the first one to be priest and king, a different kind of priest and a different kind of king. There was one man in Second Chronicles 26, this king, if you ever heard of him, Uzziah provided shields, spears, helmets, coats of armor, bows, and slingshots for the entire army. He was a man's man. In Jerusalem, he made devices invented for use on the towers and on the corner defenses so that soldiers could shoot arrows and hurl large stones from the wall. He, he won king of the mountain when he was a little boy. His fame spread far and wide for he was greatly helped until... He became powerful. But after Uzziah became powerful, his pride led to his downfall. He was unfaithful to the Lord his God and he entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. In other words, be a king, be a humble king, follow God and care for the poor and the oppressed and serve humanity with mercy and justice. Be a king. And his pride and his fame spread. It corrupts almost all of us, doesn't it? If we just taste it, it can be so corrosive to us. And it was to this king. Jesus is the priest and he's the king. And we are to offer our lives. We have a priestly role. Does that spook you out a little bit? I don't want you wearing a collar. I'm not making fun of those who do. You're not to dress in black. It's not a clerical thing it's in a professional way. But you're called to be a priest. You're called to offer sacrifices of God in the New Testament with the New Covenant under Jesus. I studied it this week. Here are the passages that talk about the sacrifices we are to make. Romans 12 says that you're offered your body as a living sacrifice to God. That's your reasonable service. You sacrifice your body in worship to God. It is. It has a soul and it's prized and has worth. You're not a random collection of atoms and molecules. This thing called sex is a gift and is not to be used cheaply. Offer your body as a living sacrifice. In Hebrews 13, it tells us that we're to offer the fruit of lips that give praise to His name. We're to sing uh, like the Jewish people, uh, like the African American uh, slaves. We're to sing in the pain of our lives, in the midst of our suffering. We offer that sacrifice, the praise of our lips. And by the way, I'm learning slowly over time that when I praise, I have less time to complain. We offer our bodies, we offer our lips. Hebrews 13 also and Philippians 4 tells us that we offer our money, we give sacrifice. Are you a giver? I never want to shy away from this. Are you a giver? Do you give sacrificially? Do you give systematically to, 
to God's kingdom work. That's the sacrifice we are to make. And Romans 15, 16 tells us we're to offer a sacrifice as we perform the priestly duty of sharing our faith with other people. So you are, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, and a holy nation. And this idea is that we would, as the Bible says, that we would be a people together, that we're a city on a hill, we're salt and light, and salt is better when it's scattered. None of you, you've never sat down and ate a bowl of salt. You wouldn't want to do that. Salt is best scattered. It gives flavor and it preserves, and that's the role of the Jesus follower, and that's what Scripture tells us, that's, tells us we are, who we are. And I want to challenge you today to live up to that potential. That's who Christ has made you and is making you. To be a holy nation. To be a people who are salt and also light. And as salt is better as it's scattered, light is better as it's gathered. And we are to be a people that scatters into our world. We add flavor and we're preservatives. But we're also to be a people who gather together. And when we work together, when we practice mercy and justice and compassion and love and express joy in our world today, it's a demonstration. We are a city on a hill, salt and light. It's who we are. So I want to ask you as we close, if you would, to assume a posture of prayer. For most of you, that's going to be bowing and closing, bowing your head and closing your eyes. As our worship team, the band, makes their way up, I want to ask you for just a moment, at the exclusion of distractions, at the exclusion of your thoughts about where you're going for lunch, other trivial things, in a moment, in this moment, would you ask God about your soul? Would you express to Him that you want to be real in your soul battle? As you're prayerfully putting that before Him, think of your car, think of the indicator lights on your car. And they're designed by really smart mechanics and engineers. And they put those lights on there so that you can know if the engine is hot, or if you need fuel or gas, work to be done on the brakes. And they're commonly called idiot lights. I think the idea there is that you see the light go on, you don't do anything about it, you're an idiot. And I want to say to you this morning, maybe strongly, but by analogy, I want to say to you in love, that some of you have indicator lights going off in your life right now. You struggle with things that you're not even struggling with anymore, not in a good way. You've just given up. Or maybe it's this 1 Peter 1, 8, this joy. You're laughing less and experiencing it less often. I want to say to you today in love, you can't fight this good fight. Joyless. You need it. Nehemiah, the joy of the Lord is my strength.
Father, I pray for these people gathered today. Thank you for a message that we can proclaim a performance-free love. Lord, I think of John 15 and you teaching. And you said that you teach all these things that we might have joy and that it might be full. Thank you for the deeper meaning that joy is not a circumstance word because probably all of us have some difficult circumstances. But joy is a soul word that no matter the circumstances, that deep within us, it can be well in us because of who you've made us. Lord, I pray that you bring some healing to people who need it today. Lord, to some who are hiding in fear, who are living the bulk of their lives in impression, image management, who are treating life like a first date, throwing things in closets and hiding things and making things appear better than they are. And God, I thank you for the light that we can walk into. Let this be your time. Be honored as we sing and pray in you, in Christ. Would you stand? This altar is open today for anyone that would come, want to come and kneel today. And a couple of us will be down front. Privilege. It would be a privilege to pray with you anything in your life today. You come.